Welcome to the Provident Podcast. Provident Expresso is dedicated to providing investment insights to clients on the go. Through these podcasts, clients are brought up to date as our team of specialists share the outlook of the market, offer perspective of events and trends affecting the economy, the financial markets and our investment management. Today, we have Mr. Daryl Liu, Chief Investment Strategist of Provident to speak to us. Hello and welcome to the second Provident Podcast. Um, I think as all of you now uh, are preparing for the school holidays and the Great Singapore Sale, um, I think if you, if you walk around the streets, you probably are wondering whether Singapore is in a recession or not, you know, because uh, uh, a lot of people are thronging the shopping malls, you know, queuing up to buy things. Um, so I think it was, it was quite interesting that uh, in, in the papers, uh, Pri- our Prime Minister Lee Hsien Long recently just came out to, to actually just caution Singaporeans uh, that it's a, probably a bit early to be saying that the recession is bottoming out. And this actually gels in with our own view, uh, the fact that we think that I think a lot of Singaporeans and a lot of investors are getting a bit of their, ahead of themselves and getting a bit over-exuberant with the run-up, particularly with equity markets uh, over the past couple of months. Um, and basically, they're, they're thinking that the V-shaped recovery is coming, um, the fact that uh, the worst is over and that everything will be fine and dandy. Um, not to bring everybody's mood down, but we still think that there are a lot of risks out there in the marketplace. Um, we think that the structural problems that have been persisting over the past several months haven't really been solved. And while the the existence of green shoots or the emergence of green shoots uh, over the past couple of months have kind of suggested that we're closer to the bottom, I don't think we are right. We are at the bottom right now. Okay. Let me first start off um, this session by giving everybody an update about the green shoots, you know, um, uh, essentially giving you our views on, on what's on the data that's been coming out. Um, then I'll move on to, to update about the, the stress test results, which was quite key, uh, which was released last month uh, pertaining to the financial sector. Then I'll move on to talk about what are some of the risks on the horizon that we are seeing um, at this point in time, and we've actually identified four different risks. Uh, before I've, I'll end up by discussing this concept called the new normal that was brought up by uh, Mohammed El Irian, the CEO and uh, co-CIO of PIMCO, the largest uh, fixed income manager in the world. Now, firstly, to, to talk about green shoots. Um, again, if you've been reading the papers and been looking at the release of economic data over the past uh, couple of weeks, you have noticed that there, there has been signs you know, that, that things are starting to improve again. Um, I think... Our our opinion about the about the green shoots is again that we think that's a bit premature, uh, particularly when you look at the the consumption numbers. Um, the consumption, at least the U.S. consumption number that has been released uh, just this week, uh, suggested that actually consumption in the U.S. is starting to slow again. So while consumption picked up in the first quarter of this year, uh, numbers for March and for April have suggested that things are starting to tail back down again. And I think this is consistent with our views that this is a structural downturn that will take consumers time to basically solve. Um, Linked to this, uh, the U.S. also released their, their, their personal savings rate. And it was quite key, at least to us, that the U.S. personal savings rate actually jumped to a 14-year high of 5.7% in April. Now, this is a positive sign in that U.S. consumers are actually starting to save more so that they can pay back their debt uh, so as to solve their problems. But, However, I think we all realize that if the U.S. 
consumers are saving more, it basically means that they are, sa- that they are spending less. And that is obviously going to affect global, uh, global demand. So I think this, this particular development is again suggesting that uh, consumption, at least coming out from the West, is likely to remain weak. Uh, for the foreseeable future. So essentially people who are thinking that there's going to be a sharp pickup or recovery in the demand side uh, may, be a, may be a bit mistaken. Now the second, second green shoot that's always been, that's been commonly mentioned again is the issue on housing. Um, I think when you look at the, the housing market, yes, I must admit that prices are starting to pick up in certain locations, but I've, as I highlighted in the previous podcast, uh, we think that this is really a function uh, of uh, location. You know, the fact that you're talking about prime uh, properties um, where most buyers would not have usually have access to get anyway, usually you have to pay a premium to actually purchase these pieces of property. In this kind of market conditions, prices are down about 30% compared to, to the last year. Um, buyers are queuing up, looking at, at uh, getting, stepping up these pieces of property. So at this point in time, there's really a disconnect between the available supply in these prime locations uh, versus the, the large demand of potential buyers who want to pick it up. But on, on, in the broad strokes, on the overall basis, uh, property prices are still falling. Um, and I think when we look at the outlook, it does look like prices are probably will, will probably fall another 10 to 15% before we reach the bottom. Now, why do we think that? If you look at the U.S. housing market, for example, the foreclosure rates are, are still rising, uh, meaning to say that the number of people who are not able to actually pay back their mortgage or to, to sustain their mortgage or maintain their mortgage have had their homes foreclosed. Banks repossess the, the pieces of property and they actually sell it out. Um, and if, if the level of foreclosed properties are rising, then we, we don't think that that can actually help spur prices higher actually. Now the second aspect that we are, we've been looking at as well is the overhang of uh, inventory, at least on un- unsold pieces of property. There are still quite a number of unsold properties in the market. And again, we need to wait for these unsold properties to move first before we can see prices uh, recover. I think the similar situation here in Singapore as well, because when you look at the local property market here, uh, we see that there's a number of uh, developments that will TOP, which will come online in the next couple of years. A lot of these properties have actually been purchased on the deferred payment scheme. Um, and with unemployment rate going up as well, I suspect that a number of these people who purchase these pieces of property as an investment property may not be able to maintain the mortgages uh, and uh, payments, payment schedules and may have to be forced to sell them into the market. And again, this will help uh, actually increase the amount of available supply, likely depressing prices as well. So bottom line, we still think it's a bit early days to be talking about uh, going to the property market. But then again, if you're one of those who is fortunate enough to, to be eyeing a prime piece of property, those don't become available uh, too often. So maybe it's a good time to look at those. Okay, moving on to the second portion, which is updating everybody about the financial sector. Uh, we did say last month that uh, the stress test will be a key result um, that we will all be looking out for. Um, and surprisingly, the, the stress test results actually came in far better than a lot of pundits actually uh, expected. You know. um, still, sitting where we are, we are actually questioning the, the, the how, how conservative or how aggressive the, the assumptions used in the stress test are. Now, just to, to sum up again, the reason why the stress test had to be done in the first place is actually to, 
to give confidence to the market that these banks can actually sustain, go, can continue as a as a sustainable business. Meaning to say, what what the U.S. government has done is that they've projected based on certain assumptions, uh, GDP growth, for example, unemployment rates, you know, uh, certain loss uh, requirements, uh, whether these banks will need to raise more funds and how much funds they will raise and how much losses they'll be incurring in line of these assumptions. Now, the, the results of the stress test was, as I said, better than expected in the sense that the amount of capital required by the banks in terms of new capital that they raised was a lot lower than what people expected. However, when we look through the, the details, we do have to ask some questions. For one, we think that actually the, the assumptions used, particularly pertaining to unemployment rate in the U.S., was arguably not, uh, not bad enough. Because what, what number they, they, they actually used uh, 8.9% unemployment in the U.S. on average for the entire 2009. Now, but when we look at the numbers today, at the end of April, unemployment rate is already at 8.9%, and it's likely to hit even higher. So we do think that the unemployment rate in the U.S. will average hard, more than 9% for the whole of 2009. Now, if we are right, and, the, and if the unemployment rate does average a higher level than what was used in the stress test, what is the implications? The implications, effectively, would be to the loss provisions that the banks will be incurring. Because if the unemployment rate does increase far higher than what was assumed in the stress test, it basically means that the banks are likely to incur greater losses. Losses in, uh, in, in terms of bad debt through mortgages, because people who are unemployed may not be able to service their mortgage. Uh, losses in, in terms of uh, credit card receivables that become bad debt as well, because people are not able to service their credit card debt. So these are important factors here. Um, we, we are just a bit concerned that the assumptions used in, in, the, in the worst case scenario are not really um, reflecting the true worst case scenario that we are actually envisaging. So because of that, we do think that the amount of money that the banks will have to raise may be a lot more than what was uh, stated in the report. Now, I must admit that the situation in the banking sector is starting to pick up a bit or improve a bit, mainly because of the run-up in equity prices. Um, banks have taken the opportunity to actually go out and raise new funds through issuing new, uh, issuing through new issues. Um, and over the past two weeks alone, uh, they've raised about, at least U.S. banks have raised about 40 billion U.S. dollars, um, and they've already announced that they will raise another probably about 10 to 20 billion dollars uh, in the next couple of weeks. Now, we've got to look at these numbers in the, in the context. Um, raising 40 to $60 billion uh, is good because it helps recapitalize the balance sheets of the banks. But we've got to look at these numbers in the context of the potential losses that these banks may still have to write off down the road. Because the IMF uh, came out last month in April uh, actually to, to raise, revise their potential losses pertaining to the banking sector. Um, and they actually looked at the overall banking sector and projected that uh, the o losses incurred globally in the financial sector would amount to about 4.1 trillion US dollars, um, of which 2.7 trillion dollars will come out from the US banking sector alone. Now, the US banks have already made over half of these, or who have already, have already written off about half of these losses, but that still means that it's likely that we will still see another trillion dollar write downs potentially on uh, coming out from the banking sector. Now, when we look at the amount of funds that they have raised over the past couple of weeks, they raised about $40 billion. 
potentially they could they could be writing off another one trillion dollars somewhere down the road, and that is one of the reasons why we are still concerned about the prospects in the financial sector. You know, I know a number of people might have made a lot of returns from punting uh, financial stocks over the past couple of months because they have rallied extremely strongly, but our views still remain that we are quite skeptical and we are quite concerned that the threat of nationalisation within this uh, this sector is still a very real one. So we don't think that we are out of the woods pertaining to the financial. Okay, moving on to the next part. Um, essentially, to talk about some of the risks, you know, that could derail the the, the recovery in the markets. Uh, the of the topmost risk, at least in our minds, is really this issue uh, pertaining to the quantitative easing that we are seeing uh, being done all over the world today. Now, just as a recap, a quantitative easing is just a nice, fancy, big word for printing money, because that's what the central banks uh, have been doing. Uh, they've been trying to jumpstart the economies. How how have they been doing so? Uh, they've sim- simply asked the central banks to print money, throw money into the system so that we can inject more liquidity there. Now, I've got nothing against uh, fiscal stimulus packages and, uh, and trying to, to jumpstart economies. But when we look at the situation today, uh, we see a very big disconnect in that a number of Western countries are spending money that they don't have. Whereas a lot of Eastern emerging market uh, countries like, for example, China and even here in Singapore, uh, we've saved up reserves over the past several years. Um, and now, when the rainy day has come, uh, we're actually utilizing that reserves to help smooth things out, you know, to, to help, help improve the lives of the population. Now, that, that is a, actually a very viable and actually a strategy that should be encouraged. However, what we're seeing in the US, in the UK, and in Europe, to, to a certain extent in Japan as well, we're seeing these governments actually spend money that they don't have. Now, a, lot of, a number of optimists out there are thinking that you know, all this fiscal spending will help jumpstart the reco- recovery in the markets and then we'll see a, a nice V-shaped recovery. However, where I'm sitting, I, I'm, I'm scratching my head and thinking that you know, there's no way that somebody can simply print money and spend their way out of trouble. You know, um, if they don't have the money to begin with, there must be some repercussions and implications of the actions which they're taking today. And we are starting to see some of these uh, repercussions already over the past couple of weeks. Now, again, put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's about to lend money. Yeah, if, you are, if you are going to lend money to somebody, what is one of the key things that you'll be looking out for? One of your key considerations is obviously whether this person that you're lending money to will be able to pay you back. Now, you will assess their probability of paying you back. And if you deem that the probability of the risk is quite high, then you'll be asking this person to give you a higher interest, you know, or higher return to actually compensate you for the risk that you're taking. Now, this is, a, this is the case that we are seeing today because the US, UK, Europe, they're basically doing quantitative easing, they're printing money and they're issuing bonds, hoping to get investors to come in to fund their spending, um, their fiscal stimulus packages. Now, if you are a potential investor coming in, why would you want to lend money to, let's say, the U.S. government to buy U.S. treasuries when the yields that you're getting or the interest that you're getting is so low? And when you look at it on a rational basis, the balance sheet of the U.S. government is in, is in a terrible shape. There are trillions of dollars in debt. You know? So that's something that the marketplace is starting 
to recognize now, starting to price in this risk. And that became apparent a couple of weeks ago when Standard & Poor's downgraded the outlook of the UK, uh, of the United Kingdom, because they looked at the deficits that the government was running and they said that, okay, the, while, while they didn't think that there's a high chance that they'll default, they said that the outlook was now lower. You know, become became a bit more negative because of all the printing of money that they were implement, implementing. Now, discerning investors out there then sat back and thought about it. And if the UK can get their outlook downgraded, then what's more the US? Because the US is in actually in far worse shape than the UK. So that's one of the reasons why investors started to panic a bit, pull their money out of US treasuries. And as a result, we saw U.S. Treasury yields, which is actually the interest in a way that you get on U.S. on U.S. bonds, start to rise. Now, over the past couple of months, because of uh, all the buying up, uh, the quantitative easing, easing strategies by the, the Federal Reserve in the U.S., they've actually pushed, managed to push down interest rates to a relatively low level, to hovering, so interest rates were about 2.5%. This is your 10-year U.S. Treasury yields. Now, as a result of the changes in the market perception over the past few weeks, 10-year Treasury yields actually jumped up to about 3.5%, and that's a very, very sharp rise. Now, you might sit there and think, so what's the implication of this rise in Treasury yields? Now, it has a repercussion on a lot of other things. For one, the main repercussion here is that it will, um, it will actually affect the pricing in your assets. Yeah, pricing in your assets. How does that work? Well, if you look at your discounted cash flow present value calculations, one of the key uh, determinants uh, that you need to use to value your assets is really the discount rate. And if your interest rate environment is rising, you are now discounting your cash flows by a bigger discount rate. And if your discount rate is larger, that basically means that it's going to result in a lower present value or a lower asset value. So rising treasury yields is negative for asset prices. It will actually depress asset prices. Now, the second and more important implication of rising yields is that it negates one of the key strategies that the central banks have been doing over the past several months, which is mainly trying to bring interest rates down to make borrowing cheaper for individuals and for companies. Now, when the U.S. Treasury yields have gone up, that basically means that it's making things more expensive for companies to borrow. It's making borrowing more expensive consumers as well. And that could basically affect the recovery that we are starting to see. You know? So again... Um, we see the, the implications of quantitative easing start to appear right now. There are certain other implications as well. Um, again, if you look at the, the issue here of uh, Asian, Asian countries who have been investing in, uh, in G3 government bonds, that's your US, your, your UK, your Europe, um, really we are starting to see some shifts uh, in how Asian countries, Asian governments have been investing. As a case in point, uh, the Singapore government, at least Tomasic Holdings in Singapore, came out to announce a couple of weeks ago that they actually sold off the Bank of America stake back in March. Now, I've got no issue about the losses that they incurred and all that, but what struck me was a, a key note in their announcement, uh, in their news release, the fact that now they are making a strategic change to their asset allocation strategies away from developed markets and into developing and emerging markets. And I think that's a very key change because basically what they're doing is that they're going to be selling or buying less developed market assets, buying more emerging market assets. And that again will effectively is saying I'm not going to be buying US treasuries really moving forward. Yeah. 
And a similar situation is happening in China. Again, China is one of the biggest buyers or investors in U.S. treasuries, and they have, they have effectively been uh, funding uh, U.S. consumption. Again, there was a very subtle change that was uh, announced a couple of weeks ago. The Chinese government said that they'll, they'll no longer be buying or they'll be reducing the purchases of 30-year U.S. treasuries. Instead, what they're doing is that they're buying shorter-dated treasuries, buying more of the two-year uh, treasuries. Again, it's a very subtle shift, but it's a very significant shift. Because this move effectively gives them the ability to uh, be locked up for a shorter time frame. Because effectively, you're buying a two-year bond, you don't get locked up for, let's say, 30 years. Um, so because of that, it gives them the flexibility to shift out should they want to stop buying or sell out their treasuries and they will not incur as big a loss there. So we feel that these moves are significant in, in that it could be signifying a change in how investors uh, uh, are viewing uh, the G3 government bonds and that could have some implications because if these are, are signs of things to come we will likely see a sharp run, uh, spike up in, in government bond yields and that will basically have implications on asset prices and uh, borrowing costs in these countries and this is a, is a threat that could actually derail the recovery that we have been seeing Okay, the second major risk that we are seeing right now um, is one of uh, rising commodity prices because when we look at the commodity prices back in earlier this year, oil prices, for, for instance, was hovering about $30 a barrel, uh, pretty decent. You know, um, it basically meant that if you're filling up your, your car at the petrol station, uh, you won't be, incurring, you'll be won't be incurring as much expenses as you were before. But today, oil prices have shot up over $60. It's basically doubled uh, in the span of uh, a couple of months. And, and this again acts as a tax on the consumer because it makes things more expensive. And it's not just energy prices that have been going up. A number of other kinds of commodities, your base metals, for example, um, your agri, to a certain extent, has also gone up to a, to, by, by certain degrees. And that, again, is making things a bit more expensive for consumers. Uh, and, and that will mean that your discretionary consumer spending will have to go down because you need to spend on your, on your uh, necessities. So this, again, is another potential risk there that could affect your consumption. Consumption is already bad, but it could get worse if commodity prices continue to rise. Now, the third risk that we are seeing, which we have mentioned before, is our bearishness on Eastern Europe. Uh, we said this many times before that actually Eastern Europe is going through a similar situation as, the, as Asia during the Asian financial crisis. They didn't take prudent steps. They borrowed in lower yielding uh, currencies. Uh, so when their own domestic currencies depreciated, they had to actually sustain losses or they won't be able to pay up their, uh, maintain their repayment schedules. Now, just this week, uh, Latvia came out to uh, announce effectively that their interest rates have spiked up to a record high 16%. Um, and just to give you uh, some context to this, the 16% uh, interbank rate in Latvia is actually higher than the situation than, than it was after uh, Lehman Brothers fell. You know, so the situation today in, in Latvia is far worse than it was last October. Um, and what's the reason why interest rates in Latvia have spiked up? Well, the main cause is because the central bank has been busily purchasing the domestic currency in an attempt to defend the peg. The Latvian uh, domestic currency, which is called the Latvi, is actually uh, pegged against the euro. And the euro has been strengthening against the, the Latvi. But in order to maintain the peg, the, the Latvian government has been forced to go out and buy the domestic currency. So much so that now there's a shortage 
of that V in the marketplace. And that's caused a huge run-up in interest rates. And again, as we said before, a rise, a sharp rise in interest rates is definitely bad for the domestic, current, uh, domestic economy. So Latvia is facing extreme difficulties, and I think I'm quite skeptical about whether they can uh, actually adhere to the loan agreements because they actually took on a 7.5 billion euro loan from the IMF and the EU and other lenders uh, just several months ago. Um, because of all the turmoil that they're facing in the domestic uh, economy, I doubt that they will to meet the covenants there and we could see a potential blow-up there. So Latvia is just one of the instances of the problems that Eastern Europe is facing. Okay, the final risk that we are seeing in the marketplace today is really that of geopolitical risk. I'm sure you all were reading about the, the problems that North Korea has been raising um, with their nuclear testing and the, the shooting off of missiles. Um, again, that could poise a security risk um, because North Korea is really an unknown quality out there. Um, they, they do basically what they think of. Uh, I think right now what we are dependent on is China coming in to, to try to rein them in a bit because China... Uh, supplies, or at least North Korea is extremely dependent on China for external trade, uh, for oil supplies. China has actually got a lot of bargaining power. Uh, so I think the world is now looking for China to, to enforce um, some discipline on uh, North Korea to keep them in check. But again, that poses some, some risk out there to marketplaces because if they do decide the extreme event to shoot out missiles and, uh, and invade, let's say, South Korea, um, then we could have, have a have some major implications to uh, the Asian stock markets, for example, particularly the North Asian markets. Um, associated to this, also, there's obviously the H1N1 virus. Uh, we, we did talk about the swine flu last month, but it, uh, at least concerns about this seems to have died down, even though uh, it seems to be spreading. So it does appear that the World Health Organization might, be, uh, might have to upgrade this to a full pandemic pretty soon. Um, Singapore already has, uh, I think, about eight cases. And I think that in the months ahead, we'll probably see the, the virus spread even, uh, even faster. Um, thankfully, at least, it does, does appear to be controllable, uh, treatable, so much so that a number of the people that have been infected, infected by the virus have recovered. You know, so we're not too worried about the potential impact, at least at this point in time. Uh, but again, it's a potential threat. Uh, this pandemic, if it does become more serious, it could again derail uh, the little recovery that we are starting to see. Okay, moving on to the final part now, after having said all this, talked about the green shields, talked a bit about the, the situation in the financial sector, uh, before we, we, we highlighted some of the risks, um, bottom line, we, we do admit that we see the end, uh, the bottom in the market approaching soon. So actually, we do think that we'll reach a bottom in the economy, uh, hopefully by end of this year or at latest early next year. Um, the only difference, however, in our view compared to what the market is, is pricing in uh, is the expectation of the recovery. Now, the markets, with the run-up in equity markets over the last few months, they're basically pricing in a sharp recovery in, uh, in the economy. Now, we think that the recovery will take a while to happen, uh, meaning to say it will, it will not be a V-shape, you know, probably a U, um, but it will, take, it will come somewhere down the line. It, 
maybe towards the late, later part of 2010 or next year. Um, and even when the recovery does happen, we suspect that the recovery will be a lot more muted than normal. And as a case in point, I'd just like to highlight um, this particular research piece by Mohammed El Iran, um, the CEO and co-CIO of PIMCO. Uh, he's actually coined this new term that has been picked up by the media, uh, this concept of, called the new normal. Uh, and effectively, this concept, new normal, uh, it's here to suggest that the recovery, that when, when it does come, will be different and a lot slower than the recovery that we saw, than, than the run-up or the growth that we've seen uh, over the past couple of decades. Now, when you look at global GDP growth, uh, the world has been growing at an average of between 3 to 4, and in some years, over uh, about 5% per annum. Now, uh, Mohammed El Iran has, been point, has pointed out that because of all the structural changes that we are seeing today, for example, the, the lack of leverage moving forward, uh, the increased regulation imposed by governments on a number of institutions, the fact that consumer spending will be uh, depressed for a prolonged period of time, the fact that unemployment rates will be, will be high on a historical basis over the next three to five years compared to what it has been over the past uh, 10 to 20 years. Because of all these structural uh, reasons, uh, growth, global GDP growth um, over the next three to five years is likely to be only averaging about 2 to 3%, which is at least one, a full 1% uh, slower or lower than it has been in the past. You know, so effectively, I think investors, uh, people have to have to change their mindset a bit and look at what are what the what are some of the fundamental changes that are happening in the world today, and because of these fundamental changes, the world over the next decade will be a very different place than it's been in the past. So people who are expecting astronomical growth or at least growth that was similar to what we saw in the good old roaring 80s and 90s and the early 2000s, I think will be sorely disappointed. And as a case in point. Um, when we look at the run-up in equity markets over the last couple of months, um, it's interesting to me at least that equity markets have run up 30 to 50% even while earnings have been falling. You know, and we do expect earnings will continue to be weak and will struggle to recover until we see the fundamentals start to pick up again. You know, so basically, while we think that the end is near, at least the bottom is in sight, uh, we do think that we need to be a bit more conservative and look because effectively the recovery will take a while to happen. And this basically gels in with our scenario analysis done at the turn of the year, uh, which is the reason why we, we de divided our portfolios into the beta, and that's the reason why we came up with the new alpha strategies as well. Because ultimately, when we look at the, the current situation, um, we, don't, we don't see that things can turn around so soon. And because of that, we are still concerned that over, let's say, a five-year time frame, investors may not get the returns that the... may not get... Uh, positive market returns because the markets may be going up, may be going down. You know, um, if all the risks that we've highlighted come uh, do materialize. So when we look at it from the investor standpoint, we empathize um, with them, with investors' needs that they want basically to recover their losses as soon as possible. However, we want to be able to recover the losses in as safe and sustainable a manner as possible. Because on the flip side, we want to ensure that you don't lose even more money. Um, and I think that's one of the key considerations that we are taking. So ultimately, when it comes to looking at your portfolios, um, for the beta strategies, is effectively staying the course. You know you have the time horizon to stay, um, stay for at least 10 years. Um, effectively, we are riding through the 
markets ups and downs. Uh, it's good that markets have gone up over the last couple of months. Your portfolios have uh, enjoyed that, but obviously not risen as much because there's your portfolios are not 100% exposed to equities because we are taking a diversified portfolio approach. Now for the, the alpha strategy uh, portfolios, effectively we are still waiting for signals uh, at least signs that things are getting better. Because as I said, there's some, some green shoots that are starting to appear, but it hasn't appeared in such degrees that make us comfortable to, to want to increase the risk levels in the alpha portfolios. Again, the alpha portfolios are there meant to deliver a steady return in light of a very poor economic environment. The fact that returns may not be there. So again, we are very concerned because these, are, these tend to be shorter term investors that are investing in this particular strategy. Preservation is one of our key considerations there, making sure that you don't lose more money, but yet still be able to deliver that 7 to 8% on a per annum basis. So when we look at our, our current portfolio positioning, we're kind of quite comfortable. In fact, moving in the months ahead, we are likely to uh, implement some of the strategies that we have been putting into place over the, the past couple of weeks. Uh, so for the beta portfolios, it's likely they will be fully investing the cash allocations by the end of uh, next month, or by, by the end of June. Uh, for the alpha strategies, we have been uh, talking about, uh, at least for the PGP side, we have been talking about certain strategies which we plan to implement pretty soon as well. So, bottom line, uh, we, we see a bottom in sight, you know, but I think uh, the market is getting a bit over-exuberant, so I'll just have to uh, caution a bit about expectations to temper it down a bit. So it's good that uh, Prime Minister Lee Hsien Long has come out to actually... Uh, uh, warn Singaporeans to, to actually temper down their expectations again. So, for those of you who are out there enjoying the school holidays with your kids, you know, um, I'm sure you, you might have had to make certain, certain cuts in, in holiday plans, particularly because of the H1N1 virus. Um, but if you are thronging the, the shopping malls, um, you know, if there are bargains there, out there to be had, you know, please grab hold of it because obviously with the retailers, with restaurants, with hotels coming out with fantastic deals, it is probably a, really a great Singapore sale. So thank you everyone and I look forward to talking again next month. <laughs>